Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Glad that you're here. It's always good to come and study God's Word together on Wednesday night, and uh, we go in-depth and looking at what God has said in His Word. His Word is in, infallible, inerrant. It is our authority. In fact, tonight's passage talks about the importance of the Bible itself. We're glad that you're here. Those of you joining us online, we welcome you also. We always have a good number joining us on Wednesday nights for our study as well. So wherever you are, we welcome you as well. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll get there in just a moment. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll pick up in verse 20 in just a moment. God, we thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. <clears throat> your word is truth, it is power, it is alive, it's active. And I pray tonight that, God, you will intersect our hearts and spirits with what we read and what you're teaching us through your word tonight. God, thank you for those who are here. I pray your blessings upon them. I pray the Holy Spirit will be our teacher, will understand what you teach us through the passages. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus, what he means to us, how from the foreordained very beginnings of the universe, it was declared that he would be our Savior, and we're thankful for that. So God bless our time together tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1, we will look at verses 20 to 25 tonight, which will take us to the end of the chapter, and then we'll pick back up chapter 2 next Wednesday night uh, as living stones and holy people, as Peter continues the analogies describing what it's like to be a believer. So let's remind ourselves again where we are. It's been about 33 years since the crucifixion and resurrection. Now it's, it's about 63 A.D., so it's been about 33 years. Jesus, of course, died in 30 A.D., so 63, year, uh, 63 A.D., 33 years, some Gentiles are now living on the Black Sea uh, in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and they are believers in Christ. Most likely they were at Pentecost. Peter preached in Acts 2. They got saved and went back to where they were from took the gospel up there, church started, and now you have believers who are living up there. So most likely Peter, once writing this back to them, was the very same person who led them to faith in Jesus 33 years ago. Now as they're living for Christ, they're living in a culture that doesn't understand them. Uh, they are accused of a lot of things. They're accused, as I mentioned last week, of being cannibals, Christians are. They're accused of being odd and weird and, and just society was very leery of believers. You say, well, why cannibals? Well, the Lord's Supper, the drinking of the blood and the eating of the body, and, and they, a culture didn't understand that. So it's very much a faith culture did not understand. As a result of it, they persecuted them. Formal persecution had not begun yet, nor really had fatal persecution begun. They really weren't dying for their faith. They were just being persecuted, discriminated against, social persecution, being marginalized in culture, things like that, uh, verbal abuse, mistreatment. And so Peter writes back and tells them, here's how you deal with that. How do you live in a culture that doesn't understand who you are? So I felt that really pretty much relates to who we are today. We live in a culture that doesn't understand Christianity that much. What they do know of it, they usually it's misunderstood. What they do know of it, they don't agree with. They think we're wrong for believing what we believe and doing what we do and going to church like we go to church. And so they think we're wrong. And sometimes we too are marginalized. It's not illegal to be a, a Christian in America. It wasn't illegal there then either. 
So really what they went through is pretty much what we go through today. Marginalization, discrimination, mistreatment maybe from time to time, verbal abuse. But really we're not in fear for our lives for being Christians. And they weren't either at this point. So Peter wrote to them to say, here's what you do. First of all, remember some things. And then second of all, here's how you act. So in this study... We're directly applying what he said to our lives so we know outside these walls what we're to remember and secondly, how we are to act. So, we started chapter 1. He began with the introduction, verses 1 and 2. And then he began with the words, famous words of a hymn, which is verses 3 through 12. Those are the words of a hymn. Very familiar, they would know. In the words of the hymn, he reminded them that they were born again to a living hope. He reminded them that they had received salvation that could never be lost. It's reserved in heaven by the power of God. And he reminded them they were to rejoice during the various trials that they encountered because the testing of their faith produced uh, patience. And their faith came through like gold, refined like gold. Then last week, he went to their actions. What are we to do as believers in Christ? He said, prepare your minds and be sober-minded or serious-minded, verse 13. He said in 14, don't act like you're lost again for one thing. That's a good reminder to us as believers. How do we impact our culture? Well, one thing is don't act like we're lost. Sometimes we do. We, we think like they think. We act like they act. We get mad like they get mad. We do things like lost people, like we used to do before we got saved. He said, don't live like that if you're going to reach that culture. And then he said, verses 16 and 17, be holy as God's holy, which means set apart. So we're to be set apart and different from the world. Now, starting for tonight. Tonight's verse 20 has its background starting in verse 18. Starting in verses 18 and 19, Peter referred to what we're redeemed with as Christians. He referred to our salvation. And he said, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. You were saved or redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Now, remember last week the word precious is never used in Old Testament sacrificial lambs. But Peter lived with Jesus three and a half years. He walked with him, lived with him 24-7, and he knew there was something about that blood he shed. It was precious. We called it timios in Greek. It's precious blood. He used the imagery of a sacrificial Old Testament system. And he added also that the blood of Jesus was, that he was like a lamb that was blameless and spotless. Remember last Wednesday night we talked about blameless was what was required for the Old Testament, but never said anything about being spotless. But Peter, looking at Jesus' life again, three and a half years, said he was also spotless, blameless, and morally pure. So that's how he described Christ. So, beginning tonight, verse 20, Peter continues talking about Jesus, death on the cross, and he tells us something interesting about what happened. So let's look, starting verse 20, 21, letter A on your outline, faith and hope are in God through Christ. Read with me, 
verse 20. He, talking about Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him, verse 21, are believers in God who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now let's stop there and let's talk about those two verses. He tells us something really interesting about Jesus in verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So in other words, the fall, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that did not take God by surprise. God knew before Adam and Eve ever sinned, they would sin. And he knew before he ever created them and placed them in the garden, they would fall and would need a Savior. And he knew 6,000 years later, you would be born and you would need a Savior. And so would I. So, before the foundation of the world even began, God had Jesus in mind to die on the cross. Now think about that. That just really kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? That the cross was God's plan before he ever made the world. You see, I was always under the impression, and, and I hear statements like this even today, that God created this perfect world and everything was perfect and good, and he put Adam and Eve there and he thought they were going to live in perfection the rest of their lives. But that old serpent came in and deceived them both and tricked them both into sinning, and he had to go into plan B action. What's plan B? Um, plan B is, okay, I guess I'll go down there myself, live among them, be one of them, and take their place and die. There was no plan B. That was plan A from the beginning. In fact, I still hear it talked about that way. I still hear people share the gospel and say it exactly like that. Adam and Eve fell, they sinned, we all sinned, and so God had to come up with a plan B. No, he didn't. Jesus was plan A. He knew all of that. He knew from the very beginning that's what was going to happen. And he created the world anyway. Now, whenever he says in verse 22, having, rather, I'm sorry, verse 20, foreknown before the foundation of the world and made manifest in the last times, foreknown and manifest are two, in the Greek language, passive participles. One is a perfect participle, the other is an aorist participle. You say, well, why is that important? Because it makes a difference in how you interpret it. Foreknown being a perfect passive participle, that means if it's perfect, it shows the extent of the foreknowing. In other words, something happened in the past, but it has continuing results. That's the perfect tense. Something happened in the past, but it still has results today. Aorist tense is different. It happened one time in history, period. It's over. It happened. It's done. It's over. 
So knowing that foreknown was the perfect tense and manifest was the aorist tense, listen to what he's saying. Jesus, from the very beginning, perfect tense, God acted and those still results are today. But Jesus was made manifest, which means he came down at a point in time. 4 B.C. he was born, as Galatians said, in the, in the fullness of time. God said, now's the right time. And he came, 4 B.C., died 30 A.D., a point in history. So Jesus made a decision, God made a decision before the foundation of the world that there would be a point in history he would enter through Jesus. Why? Well, Peter says at the end of verse 20, for the sake of you, he did it all for you. Has anybody ever loved you so much to, do, to go to that extent just for you? Well, God did. Now, when did Peter know that Jesus was plan A from the very beginning. When did he know that? It's been 33 years, remember, since the death and resurrection of Christ. So somewhere in those 33 years, did God eventually reveal to Peter what happened? Uh, no. Because if you remember in Acts chapter 2, 50 days after the resurrection... Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and he says in verse 23, quote, Jesus was delivered up by the foreknowledge of God to, and the determinate plan of the Jewish council to die for you. So 50 days after it happened, he already knew. And then in chapter 4, Peter's appearing before the council again, and he said, quote, in verse 28, Jesus' death was predestined to take place. Peter knew from the very beginning God had in mind for the cross. Revelation 13, 8, the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So Peter knew from the very beginning Jesus was foreordained for your sake. Now look at verse 21. Who through him, through Jesus, are believers in God. You, you through Christ are believers in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So listen to what Peter's saying. God raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. So he didn't raise Jesus from the dead for Jesus just to resume life as he'd been living it. See, I kind of always had that impression. Jesus died, buried him in the tomb, they raised him again, and he just went on living like he had always lived. No. Raised him to glory. So much glory that as he's walking with two men on the road to Emmaus, they didn't know who he was. But then he got there and broke bread, and they recognized who he was. So it was glory. He raised him for glory. So that, verse 21, your faith and your hope are in God. Now, without getting too technical, 
I want to mention something to you about that phrase, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Have you ever noticed that the words so that are in the Bible a lot? So that. Something happens, so that. The result. In fact, it's, in the Greek, it's, it's called, it's the Greek word is hosti. And whenever you use hosti with an infinitive, it means so that. It's done 62 times in the New Testament. So God's telling us in that, I have an intended purpose. Anytime you say, so that, it means purpose. So, the reason God raised Jesus from the dead, there's a purpose behind it. Why? So that your faith and your hope are in God. It's God's desire or not. It's his purpose and plan from the very beginning that you trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's his plan from the very beginning that you have hope in God. You're not hopeless tonight. You're not a faithless people. You're not a hopeless people. The very reason Jesus came and God raised him from the dead and gave him glory is so that you would have hope and you'd have faith. Now, let's go to letter B on your outline, verses 22 to 25. We'll spend the rest of our time on this. The results of purified souls. First of all, look at verse 22. Peter says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now let's stop there at that one verse. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. First of all, the phrase having purified your souls. Whenever you got saved, I hope you hear me well tonight. Whenever you got saved, you got cleansed. You got purified. You're clean. Now, that's important because John, whenever Jesus washing the disciples' feet, John 13, 10, he tells them, you're clean if I clean you. But there's, a, there's an impression out there that people think you have to be baptized to be cleansed. No, you're cleansed whenever Jesus saves you. Baptism does nothing as far as the cleansing part. It is a symbol. It is obedience. It's important. It's the first act of obedience God commands us to do. But folks, it does not cleanse you. Jesus cleanses you. Having purified your souls, the word purified is cleansing. It goes back to the Old Testament purification. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. What's obedience to the truth? Getting saved. Not your baptism. So I still hear this a lot. Well, make sure that you realize you were cleansed when Jesus saved you, even before the baptismal waters. Now, there are some denominations that believe you're not cleansed until you get up there. Church of Christ, one of them. But Scripture teaches you're cleansed when Jesus forgives you of your sins at that moment by faith. Now, 
No, go to the next part. Having purified your souls by, by, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now think about this. Peter matches together obedience to the truth and love for the brothers. He links those two together. We often separate them. I'm obedient to be saved, but loving it, well, I'm working on that. And we separate them. I'm saved. And I'm working on loving other people. I'm not good at it. Some people test me. We separate them. Peter linked them. Obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Obedience and, and love or, and truth produce sincere love for other Christians. Notice he said for the brethren. Nowhere in the Bible are lost people called brothers or sisters, only Christians. So should we love everybody? Absolutely. It's not what he's talking about here. He said love for the brethren, other Christians. So he's writing to a church probably had trouble loving each other. Because he talks about it a lot. When God places us into a right relationship with himself, he expects us to be in a right relationship with one another, with other Christians in the church. Our cleansing makes it possible to love others. When God purifies our hearts, he removes his evil thoughts, evil feelings from our heart toward other believers. Now, I don't have to tell you this tonight. I think you know it. There are a lot of churches out there tonight. Myers may be one of them. I don't know. But there are a lot of churches out there tonight where church members gather every Sunday and there are some people at odds with each other. They don't really speak. They don't really like each other. They don't really love each other. There's some friction going on. A lot of churches tonight, individuals have friction with one another. And Peter said Jesus did not die for that. And he linked together your obedience to the truth and your loving each other out there. Sometimes the issues happen at church. And they get mad at each other. They don't speak. Sometimes the issues happen in the community. But it comes into the church. Sometimes it happens in the schools. Or on the ball field. It comes into the church. And Peter is saying, Jesus did not die for you to stay unloving one another. Well, pastor, I love them. I just don't like them or talk to them. No, you don't love them then. You can parse words all you want, but if you love someone, there's no animosity between them. You need to get that right if there is. Peter now says, do everything out of love for other Christians. Now, we should love everybody, but especially here he's talking about those who are brothers in, the Christ, in, in Christ. Now, I want you to notice something about verse 22 that I found interesting. Notice he says the first part, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sense of brotherly love, comma, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So, 
He is making a statement, then he gives a command. The statement is, you're loving one another from a pure heart. Now, love one another. What? You just said we were. That'd be like a parent saying, well, son or daughter, since you've been taking out the trash, go take out the trash. Well, I've been doing that. If, if we've been loving one another, why do you say love one another? Ah, remember, love in the Greek language has more than one word, remember? Phileo is, the word, get the word Philadelphia from it, it's brotherly love. Eros is erotic, that's like a sexual kind of love. Uh, agape is unconditional God kind of love. And so there are different words, but they're all translated love. Is Peter doing something like that? Yeah. Here's what he said. The first love is phileo, brotherly love. The second word, love, is agape, unconditional God kind of love. So here's what he's saying. Since you've already started loving each other on the phileo level, move on to the agape level. You like each other as brothers and sisters. Now love each other as God loves you. It's going to the next level. He uses phileo first and agape second. You've made it to one level. Go on to the next one. Now I find that interesting in light of the campfire. You remember the campfire? You remember Peter Back when Jesus was alive, denied Christ around the campfire. He's being over here before the, the, the religious leaders. And Peter's warming his hands. I don't know the man. I don't know who you're talking about. And then three times he denied him. And then they crucified Jesus. And Peter felt horrible that he had denied the Lord. And all, three days later, he heard he was alive. And... Jesus told Mary, I'm going to Galilee, tell him, tell him meet me up there. And by the way, make sure Peter comes. So Mary said that, Jesus, make sure you're there. So he went up there. And if you remember, Jesus was having another campfire. He had cooked breakfast for them. They got out of the boat. They went to the shore. And Jesus around the campfire again. Peter's probably going, oh, no, this campfire's not good for me. I denied the Lord last time. Now he's got a campfire again. I'm sure he remembers it. And do you remember what he asked Peter to restore him? Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, I love you, Lord. And he asked him three times. And in the original language, Jesus asked, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter said, Lord, I phileo you. He couldn't use the word agape never did three times so now 33 years later writing to a group of Christians up on the Black Sea he says you've made it to that phileo level you go on to the agape level because he had done it himself very interesting wording that he uses notice the next phrase Love one another earnestly. That word is a strong aorist imperative. It literally means to do something so hard you're straining and sweat pops out. 
I'll be honest, I've never thought of loving somebody as that strenuous. Maybe working out, maybe mowing the yard, maybe moving something heavy. I never considered loving one another hard work like your veins pop out. But that's what he said. Love one another strenuously. Love one another when it's hard to do. Love one another when it's hard work. Think of somebody in this church you don't like really being around. And you work hard to love them like sweat's popping out, like you're working hard at it. That's what he said do. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, it's Peter's style, as he writes, to add one modifier following another. And it's what he did here also. This is impossible to do unless you're truly born again. You can't love from a pure heart unless God gives you a new heart. Because sometimes, to be honest, when we try to love one another in the church, sometimes those efforts are rebuffed. They put their nose in the air and walk on. It makes you mad because you tried. Sometimes it's not appreciated. Sometimes you're met with coldness or indifference when you try to love one another. And sometimes, just to be honest, others in the church are not very lovable. Yet we can still love with a pure heart, pure heart regardless of if they love back or not. Your heart's clean. Your heart's right. Your heart's pure. I tried. God, I'm loving them because you told me to love them strenuously. So I am. Go to verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about that the word born again is not in the Bible that often. We think it is because we, the phrase born again, you hear that in Baptist churches a lot. We use the phrase born again a lot. But it's not in the Bible that much. Jesus mentioned it in John 3 with Nicodemus, you must be born again. But outside of that, it's not in there very often. And when it is, it's mostly Peter using it. He's already used the word born again once a couple of weeks ago. He does again here. Most of the time, being saved is, called, is referred to in the Bible as in Christ. That's the most common phrase of what salvation. It's in Christ. It's what Paul uses over and over. Peter uses the phrase born again probably because he heard his Lord say it in John 3. So he's using the same phraseology. But here he used it again. So you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. In other words, you're not saved by human effort. You're saved by God's effort. Imperishable seed, not perishable seed. So... He, the, he then goes to the next phrase, through the living and abiding Word of God. That's how you were saved. You heard the Word of God and you were saved. Now, the Word of God seems to be the instrument Peter refers to that God uses to produce new birth, to produce new Christians. Peter seems to have a connection here with the eternal nature of salvation and the eternal nature of the Bible. The Bible's eternal. Your salvation's eternal. What a coincidence. And that's what Peter's saying. You are eternal in nature with Christ in you because the Bible, the exalted nature of your life, 
comes from the exalted nature of the Word of God. And then he goes on talking about the Word of God, and we'll talk about that for the next few minutes and we'll close. Peter really emphasizes Scripture and the Bible. So look at verse 24. For all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's offset in your Bibles like poetry because it is a quote from Isaiah chapter 40 verses 6, 7, and 8. That's why it's offset. He's quoting Isaiah is what he's doing. And then verse 25, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now let's talk about verses 24 and 25. We'll close. Notice he said, all flesh is like grass. In other words, all humans in their natural state are like grass and flowers of the field. They don't last very long. Now remember, he's writing this in the midst of a very powerful Roman Empire. They thought they were special and powerful. They were different, they thought. And so he says, no, every human's the same. In your natural state, you're like grass and flowers of the field. Now, back in this day and at this time period and where this was in the Orient, the intense sun would blast upon the fields. It spared neither grass or flowers, and their strength was gone, and their beauty evaporated quickly. Actually, you don't have to say the Orient anymore. You can say Texas this past summer, can't you? Grass didn't last long, did it? You watered and watered and watered, and so did we, and it didn't help. You can grow flowers if you want, but it doesn't help. Sun's too intense. And so Peter uses for flesh, grass, and flowers what are called gnomic eris tenses, where tenses are timeless. In other words, every generation it happens to you, you're not different, you're not special. You're going to die. So am I. Your flesh is like grass when the sun's hot. It's going to wilt. It's going to wrinkle. It's going to get old. And it's not going to last long. But, he says, the Bible is the opposite. Never gets old. Never wrinkles. Good for every generation. Let me say that again. Good for every generation. It never becomes irrelevant, never becomes out of touch, never becomes old-fashioned, never becomes out of date with contemporary culture. All of the things you hear today about the Bible never happen because it's eternal. We're not, but it is. Now, there's something about the Bible that God has preserved for you and me. It'll always be here. You and I will die. You and I get old. You and I may be out of touch with culture. Who knows? Possible for us to grow out of touch. It's impossible for the Word of God. It never grows out of touch or outdated are irrelevant, God has compiled it in such a way it's eternal in nature. Now think about this. The Hebrew Old Testament 
has been hand-copied meticulously by teams of Jewish scribes for centuries. Jewish scribes developed intricate methods of counting words, counting letters, to ensure that no errors would be made. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, 1947, confirmed to us, whenever they first discovered, everybody, all the critics were going, aha, we're finally going to see, we found some of the earliest manuscripts, we're finally going to see that what we have here in the Bible today is wrong, and there are errors in it. And when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and started studying them, they confirmed an astonishing accuracy of the Old Testament books. Isaiah was almost completely intact. The scrolls were some 1,000 years older than the previous scrolls, but they're virtually in agreement with everything we have. Isn't that amazing? But that's what Peter said. This word is eternal. The Bible has endured centuries of manual transcription, persecution, attempts to get rid of it, ever-changing philosophies, all kinds of critics, doubt, disbelief, devaluing it in churches and sometimes in pulpits and pews. But folks, what you're holding tonight and what I'm teaching from tonight remains the powerful Word of God that Peter talked about. It hadn't changed. It has lost no power. The intense sun didn't wrinkle it. It's not going to decay. Interesting, in 303 um, A.D., some 300 years, 250 years after Peter wrote this, Roman Emperor Diocletian at the time decided he was going to get rid of every single copy of the Bible in the Roman Empire. So he tried. He demanded every single copy of the Bible be burned. And he thought he got them all. But he failed. 25 years later, another Roman emperor came into power by the name of Constantine, who liked Christianity. So he commissioned a scholar by the name of Eusebius to prepare 50 copies of the Bible so people could read it at government expense. We'll even pay for it. He didn't get rid, over it, get rid of it. Listen to what Bernard Rahm a German theologian said about the Bible, quote, A thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession has been formed for the Bible. The inscription has been cut on the tombstone. The committal has been read. The funeral has been had. But somehow, the corpse keeps getting up. I love Rahm's quote, Rahm's quote. It does. You can't get rid of this book. And I know, I know, we live in a culture that looks at it and calls it a lot of things. But the culture will fade. And this book won't. So as long as we preach from this book and teach from this book and you believe this book, and you read this book and study this book and memorize this book, you will be the better I will be the better, regardless of what culture says. Now, does Peter seem to be implying that, since he's putting them both together, 
that the more you know this book, the better you will love other church members? Yeah, maybe. Maybe so. He put them both in the same context. He put your salvation, loving other Christians, and the eternal nature of the Bible all in the same context. Are they connected? Maybe so. Maybe the more you read this book and study this book and live this book, the better you love each other. And if you find yourself tonight maybe not loving the way you should, maybe you need to go back to here, to the eternal nature of this book and read it and let the Holy Spirit develop in you love for other people. Now, the accuracy of the New Testament has, has been documented in, in many places. Let me just give you one quick example, and then, and then we'll, we'll, go, we'll close tonight. We have a lot of evidence, manuscript evidence, of, for Scripture. You probably knew this. F.F. F. Bruce wrote about this in a document titled the New Testament Documents. You probably knew this, but there, there, are, much, there are many more manuscripts for the Bible and timely manuscripts that the Bible's accurate than a lot of other historical books written at the same time period. For example, Caesar's book, The Gallic Wars, Bruce writes, composed between 58 and 50 B.C., only about nine or ten manuscripts are good enough you can, you can make any sense of them. Nine or ten from that document. But yet critics say, oh, it's a well-tested document. 14 of Tychitus' books, 100 A.D., only of the 14 books, the historical works depend entirely upon two manuscripts. Two! Same is true of what's called the history of Herodotus, 428 B.C., yet no classical scholar would argue about the authenticity of that book, and we have one manuscript. The Bible, we have thousands. What's the earliest one? Sometimes the earliest, 9th and 10th century. But for the Bible, the earliest, about 150 years after Jesus lived. Incredibly documented. Manuscripts, the timing, so that we know the accuracy of the New Testament is, compared to any other ancient writing of that time period, unquestioned. Folks, all that to say, what we have in Scripture and what Peter attested to tonight, what we have, accurate, reliable, trustworthy, inspired Word of God that will never fade, never perish, never be changed by culture. You can believe it. You can stake your life on it. Peter says your salvation is grounded in the eternal, exalted nature of the Word of God. Praise God. Let's pray together. We'll close big up chapter 2 next week. Father, thank you tonight for so many connections that Peter made that maybe we don't make. Father, thank you first and foremost that Jesus was foreordained before the world was even created to be our Savior. God, I pray that our obedience to the truth to be saved will produce in us a love that is strenuous, that works hard to love other Christians. 
Father, I, I, I thank you that that love that will move on to an agape kind of love. And God, thank you that you did all of this for our sake. And our salvation and our living and abiding hope is found in the eternal nature of God's Word. Thank you for what we've been taught tonight. God, help us to live it even this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.